Well, there was once a man who was crossing a border from one country into another. The man was riding a bike and carrying two heavy bags, one over each shoulder, so the border agent was suspicious. He asked the man what he was carrying, and the man on the bike simply replied, sand. Stunned, the agent, of course, ordered him to take the bags off of his shoulders and empty them out. To the agent's surprise, they were both full of sand. They detained the man on the bike like any good border agent would. This guy's doing something wrong, probably. And so they tested the sand to see if there was anything in there. Not long after the results came back that it was indeed only sand. The sand was all swept back into the bags and the man was free to go to cross the border. This happened once a month for three years. And each time the agent would empty the bags of sand, test them, and figure out that there was just sand and send the man along his way. But he knew that something wasn't right. Something had to be going on here. And then something strange happened. After three years, the man on the bike stopped coming. The agent knew of a bar where this man frequented, and so the agent made his way across the border and into the bar, and there he was, the man on the bike sitting uh, at a booth. And so the, the border agent came down and sat next to him, and he said, what have you been doing? I know you've been doing something for all these years. I know you're smuggling something into our country. What is it? I can't figure it out. It's killing me. I have to know. And the man who rides his bike, took a sip of his drink, put it down and smiled, and he said, bikes. See, the man in the joke was smuggling bikes into the country. The sand was just a mystery to throw off the border agents. He wasn't, the sand was meaningless. He was a clever guy who figured out his way to trick his way into the country. It's not really a mystery. Now, growing up, I watched uh, a TV show that maybe many of you have watched in the 80s and 90s called Unsolved Mysteries. It, it probably was not the best show for a kid to watch, especially before bedtime. It was nightmare fuel of aliens and all sorts of crazy things happening. Now, if you've seen the show, you'll remember at the end of the show or at the end of a segment, they'll have an update. And in the update, it'll show a guy in handcuffs they finally caught, or they'll, they'll show the mystery that, that has been solved. And as an adult, I would watch these, these old shows and go online and look for updates myself. Especially, I wanted to see what those flashing lights hovering over the cities were. I enjoyed reading logical, rational explanations and responses to videos of supposed aliens that were just coming for a visit. Now, I'm convinced that most, if not all, of those mysteries that I saw on television were just a misunderstanding of an actual event. There is a, a rational explanation for, for someone who just disappears, or for lights that seem to hover over big cities, or for people who say they've been abducted, abducted and probed and tested by aliens. In other words, the thing that these people saw or the things that these people experienced that they think is a mystery is likely something else altogether. Things that were once hidden, things that they didn't understand were now made clear. In fact, it wasn't aliens, it was drones or military operations. The person just didn't disappear out of thin air, they found them later. Things that you partially understood, you see fully. 
See, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul talks about a mystery. He talks about the mystery of godliness. And we'll unpack that a little bit more later, uh, but that's what's happened for the recipients of this letter. The mystery was something that was hidden or out of view, but now it is plain to see. Today we understand this mystery because we have the completed word of God and we see this mystery unfold page after page. I want to say something else too that's going to sound contradictory before we dig in. This can also still be a mystery. It's, the Bible's still a mystery to me. The story of the gospel is certainly a mystery to me. I understand the gospel with my heart. I feel the power of the Holy Spirit. I know the comfort he brings. I know the assurance that I have. But the gospel is still mysterious. What do I have to offer God? What is it in me that is of any value to the work of the gospel? Why would God use me? Why would God use you? Why would God give such a great responsibility to a bunch of people who he knows will not accomplish what he's aiming for us to do? These are questions I've asked myself and I've not found an answer, but I do know this, that God saves sinners for his glory. And I know what God, uh, that God unites people for his glory. And I know that God calls people to serve him and sometimes suffer for his glory. In other words, one of the, the mysteries of the faith is that God uses the church for his glory. The gathered assembly of believers that comes together to set aside preferences and set aside all those things that divide us and unite around the truth of the, the gospel. This is a mystery. Well, when you read 1 Timothy as one single letter, these three verses do seem a little out of place. In chapter 3, from verses 1 through 13, Paul talks about the church and the qualifications for elders and deacons. And then in chapter 4, he moves to show how some will depart from the faith. Again, he's talking about the church and what sets the church apart from the world. The Apostle Paul has been in prison in Rome, which you can read about at the end of Acts. And it's likely that Paul, after being released, traveled up to Ephesus, which is in Turkey, to place Timothy in position as pastor. And after he left Ephesus, Paul heard reports of Timothy's work, and then he wrote this letter to the church. Now I say that because at first glance, these three verses seem really, really out of place. Elders, deacons, some will depart from the faith, and this just seems shoved in there. Paul is laying the foundation for what will become the most powerful organization that the world has ever seen. And then it seems like he stops. But I'll argue that it's not out of place at all. We can't fault him for being excited about Jesus. These were Paul's words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you can imagine him. Picture this. This is not found in Scripture, but you can imagine the scene of Paul dictating this letter to his assistant. As Paul's thinking, he's pacing around the room, and he's, he's speaking the words that his assistant writes, that he pens the letter. He's excited about the growth of this young church and this young pastor, but he's worried that they're headed for trouble. Paul knows that false teachers have crept in, giving a message contrary to the truth that 
Paul had preached. Paul reminds them that the gospel is the most important thing for them. He talks about the power of prayer. He, then he moves on to church leadership. And he doesn't waste words, so it's safe to assume that the problems in Ephesus were serious enough that Paul says they're a danger to the gospel. So he's pacing back and forth in his room, and he stops in the middle. And as he's talking about the church, he pauses to praise Jesus. He says, Timothy, I can't, I can't wait to see you, man. Brother, I'm so excited to see what you're doing in Ephesus. What Paul has done so far is to tell the church what he expects of their leaders, and now he's telling Timothy and the church in Ephesus who they are. But I think we miss this so often, and I promise if you miss this, you'll miss everything else. If your understanding of what the church is, if it's off, you will not understand fellowship, discipleship, service, or anything else that God commands us to do. This is vital. And I say this because I love the local church. No church is perfect, but I love what God does through this family of believers. But there are far too many people who've divorced themselves, who've disconnected themselves from the church, that they say, well, I belong to the big C church, the, the universal church, Christians of all nations from all time, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to submit myself to a local church. And so Paul is saying, this matters. Timothy, encourage your people. Encourage your people. Train them up. Disciple them to understand that the local church is essential for the movement of the gospel. And so who are we? Who is the church? Look at verses 14 and 15. The first thing we see is that we are God's family. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. There needs to be order in the household of God, just as much as there needs to be order in a family. News flash to all of us, if an eight-year-old runs your home, there will be problems. There's a reason why the eight-year-old is not in charge. There's a reason why we have age limits for politicians, Hopefully, that doesn't always work. But we have age limits because we don't want eight-year-olds running our country, right? We don't want a 13-year-old to run our companies. We don't want a 15-year-old telling mom and dad what to do with their lives. Chaos. And likewise, Paul establishes that in the local church there needs to be order. Why? Because it's the household of God. It's the family of God. It matters. The second thing we see in verse 15 is that we are a display of God's glory. He writes, so that the church may know how to behave as a family, which is the church of the living God. When you read through the Old Testament, you see that there was a, a, a separation between God and people. And if you look at the, the Jewish people as they would worship, there was e even the, the separation of God from the religious people. That God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle, a place that only the high priest could enter, and it was only once a year. There was a veil, there was a, a covering, that there was no way that humanity could go and boldly approach the throne of God. It couldn't happen. So when Jesus died, what happened? Remember the temple veil split down the middle? 
showing that we no longer are separated from God's presence. No more going through priests to go to God. No more buildings or curtains to hold us back from him. Instead, God is with us. In two other places, Paul says that we are the sanctuary of the living God and that we're built together to be God's dwelling in the Spirit. The church is where God dwells. Of all the things that we do as a church, we do it because of this. Because God's established his church and this is where he resides in us. Paul then says that we're guardians of the truth. Saying that the church is a pillar and a buttress for the truth. Don't need to tell you what a pillar is, but a, I'll tell you anyway. A pillar is what holds a roof up. Uh, you've seen those ancient buildings uh, you know, in Greece and in Rome. You see these buildings, these beautiful architecture, even in the United States. If you go to the United States Capitol, you will see these columns. What purpose does a pillar or a column do? It holds up what's above the pillar or the column. And, and, and Paul says that we are pillars. The church is a pillar. And the readers of this letter would have known this. They would walk around their city in Ephesus and see these Greek-inspired buildings with these columns and pillars that hold up the roofs of their temples. A buttress, if you've been to Notre Dame or seen Notre Dame, that's probably the most, uh, the best example of this. A buttress is there to hold it from the side so that the brick wall doesn't fall over. It's supporting, it's holding up, it extends to the sides of the wall. Now the idea that Paul is planting in their minds is that God's word, the gospel, is held together and protected by the church. Now I know that the gospel holds us together, I'm not denying that at all, but God has given his people a responsibility to be orderly, to display his glory, and to guard the truth. We guard the truth by lifting it high through the proclamation of the word. And we guard the truth by holding it up, by defending it. The reason why we do anything that we do is because we value truth. You take away the truth of God's word, we have nothing. And so we fight for it. We study it. We meditate upon it. We hold it high. We protect the truth. We protect the gospel. Because it brings God glory. So you see why the church matters. We have a task. We have a responsibility. So we know what we're supposed to do. Now what's the message that we proclaim? Well, Paul gives us this in verse 16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. While these first two verses give us the clear importance of the church, verse 16 shows us what we proclaim. All three of these verses, uh, kind of what I mentioned earlier, uh, they seem to be added because Paul is just so excited to proclaim the truth about Jesus. And this verse really seems out of place from everything else that Paul has, has written. He's talked about the church, but he seems to pause for a moment to remind the church in Ephesus why they're a church in the first place. And then he begins, to use, begins by using a strange term, the mystery of godliness. What is that? If we were to, to go around the room and ask what the word mystery means, you, you may think of an Agatha Christie novel. 
Uh, you may think of a, of a movie that you like, or you may think about ghost stories or missing persons or murders that we don't have solved, but that's not what Paul means. The mystery is something that was hidden, but is now revealed. See, up to the spread of the gospel through Christ's ministry and the work of the apostles, the Jews worshiped God and believed in the promised Messiah. They saw that the Old Testament promised that God would send someone to restore and renew creation who would save people from their sins. But they didn't know when, they were, when he was coming. And so many believed, and many still do, that the Messiah hasn't come yet. That there are, are people today who are still waiting for the Messiah to arrive, and they're waiting for a king or an earthly political power to rise up and bring Israel back to prosperity, not forgiveness of sin. But the Ephesian church and all of the Christians in the early church now had the truth fully revealed to them. Jesus is the one that completes the mystery that we see in the Old Testament. The, the, the things that we can't fully see, the things that we don't understand, Jesus comes and shines a perfectly bright light on all of those things. So when we read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, we see it for what it means. We see the words in a new way. Christ was concealed in the Old Testament, but when he came, he took the blinders off and cleaned our glasses so that everyone could finally see their king. You know, if you've got bad vision, you can't tell whether you're standing in front of a Shrek or a supermodel. If you've got bad vision, you don't know what you're looking at. You can see movement, you can see bits and pieces, but... It's not clear, but anyone who wears glasses or wears contacts knows that moment when you first put on those glasses. For years, I thought street signs, no one could read them. And I'm driving at night squinting, and the moment I put on those glasses, I laughed for about 10 minutes. I said, this is what I've been missing? This, this is what uh, the world really looks like? How in the world have I missed this? And this is how it was for, for, for some of the Jews. They could only see the E on the top of their vision chart. They were almost totally blind, but as anyone with glasses can tell you, when you see, it makes sense. The coming of Christ is that clarity. It is sight. Think about how the Jewish people of Christ's day uh, would have felt when they finally understood that all of history, every single moment was pointing to Jesus, that was pointing to the coming of Christ. Think about how they would have felt. Do you know how Paul was converted? Many of you know the story. Paul was blinded by God and then three days later got his vision back. And when he got his vision back, he didn't see things the way that he did before. He wasn't just a convert. He wasn't just changed. He was a new man. He loved the people that he formerly persecuted. See, this is the mystery that Paul talks about. He was blind and now he can see. And so what does he see? In verse 16, he gives a list of six things that talk about Jesus. Core truths to our faith. Core to what we believe about Jesus. Things that we believe as part of this mystery. First, he says that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. 
This means that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. There is no setting aside his, his deity to become a fully man. No, he was fully God and fully man at the exact same time. This matters because without this truth, we have no hope. If Jesus is not fully man, his death on the cross is meaningless to you. Only a person can rightfully pay for the crimes of another person. So if Jesus were not fully human, he couldn't accomplish anything on the cross. Jesus also had to be fully man to be tried and tempted as we are. But only God can withstand all of that. Only God can, can go through all of those temptations and make it out. Fully God fully man. The second thing Paul lists is that he was vindicated by the Spirit. You can say that he was verified by the Spirit. This is the saying that the Holy Spirit has given us the assurance that Jesus is who he says he is and the apostles, what they wrote is true. Third, Paul says that Jesus was seen by the angels. This means that the angels testify that Jesus is Lord. Fourth, Paul says that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. Listen, one of the things that I've wondered for years is why was Jesus sent at the time that he was sent? Think about it. If we were creating a religion from scratch, would we go to a time that the only way to get from one place to another is by riding a horse or a camel or a donkey or by walking? And you're 30, 40 miles away from the next city? No printing press, no internet, no engines. And, and so I, I thought, creating a religion now would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it, from our perspective? Because you've got the internet, you can make a website, and boom, you're there, you've got followers. But even though it seems like a better time could have been chosen to send Jesus, we see the fruit of this time. 2,000 years have passed, and what have we seen? The gospel has spread across the world. Without all of the, the traveling that we have now, the gospel set the world on fire. Missionaries going all over the world to proclaim that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus came. And this is what we see in verse 5, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, it certainly feels, from our perspective, that the world is less and less open to the story of the gospel. But let's not forget that people all over the world today are hearing the gospel for the first time and trusting in Christ. Jesus came to save the world. That means those from every tribe and nation and tongue. Salvation did not belong just to one people. It belongs to the world. People from all over the world are hearing the gospel proclaimed and coming to Christ in repentance and faith. Six, Jesus was taken up in glory. The angels are still celebrating. Jesus is no longer on the cross or in the grave. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So these verses show us that Jesus himself reveals the mystery of godliness Thousands and thousands of years of waiting for their fulfillment to be found has been found in Jesus. The one who created everything came into the world as a baby. And the one who was murdered on a cross reigns over the entire universe. But it doesn't just stop there. If you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, Jesus lives within you. 
You are the beneficiary of the work of Christ. And being the beneficiaries of that work, we get to rest in the gospel and we get to proclaim that to the nations. Now I want to leave you with something that I know is essential to understanding the Christian faith, that God's glory shines through his bride. Does God need us to accomplish his purposes? No. God doesn't need anything else. God is perfectly fulfilled in the Trinity. They are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not need us. And it shows us that ultimately we're not as important as we may think we are. But God still loved us, his creation, and decided to make a way for his creation to be reconciled to him. So he shines his glory most through his son, but he's also glorified in us, his people. The way that he's done this is by exhibiting his glory through his church. Listen, you cannot fully understand the church if you do not understand Christ, and you cannot fully understand Christ unless you understand his bride. This passage gives me, and hopefully it gives you, great joy and comfort because it shows us that Jesus is the supreme ruler and authority over all. He is the king, and the king keeps his promises. He doesn't guarantee us an easy life, certainly, we know that, but he does guarantee that his followers will inherit eternal life, even if that means suffering now. And what he's given to us as we await his return is the church the pillar and protector of the truth. It's where we obediently use our gifts to bless others so that they grow in maturity and holiness. Listen, make no mistake, the church is indispensable for us. We cannot thrive as Christians when we do it by ourselves The church is God's gift to us, to support us, to protect us, to hold up the gospel, to disciple us, to train us, to equip us in order that we go out into the world and we serve as missionaries proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we're here. My hope and my prayer is that you hear the gospel today. And the gospel is this, that we are sinners by birth and by choice, that we are completely guilty before a holy and righteous God, and that we can't stand before him and defend ourselves. We have no defense. And God says that we will do that one day. We will stand before him to give an account. And the truth is that most people live in a way that they decide they want to be God rather than the one true God. And what happens in there is when we try to remove God off of his throne and put ourselves on there, we are idol worshipers. We're worshiping ourselves. The Bible says there is but one God. And our sin has blinded us. Our sin has prevented us from seeing the glory of God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to die for you and to die for me so that we can be reconciled, so that that bridge, the the veil, the, the building that separated us from the Father can now be torn down and we can boldly approach the throne. We can say that we belong to the God of this universe as sons and daughters. And this is what I want you to hear and this is what I want us to proclaim. 
to go be missionaries, to share the gospel with people around us, to tell people about Jesus, how they can be reconciled with the perfect God that we worship. I also pray that we all see the need for the church to serve, to build us up, to protect the truth, to lift us up, to say that there is only one gospel, there is only one way, and to proclaim it with everything that we have and everything that we are. Would you pray with me?